Well, hello, welcome to Center Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are uh, glad you're worshiping with us on this uh, evening here at uh, Cross Life Church. And if you're keeping count, like uh, me and Pastor Josh, this is the 105th service that we have had here at Cross Life Church, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and it's also the last. So 105, uh, Lord willing. We'll see. Maybe we'll end up back here one day or another for some reason, but I don't think so. So last one here. Um, we, uh, we are so grateful uh, to Pastor Todd and Cross Life Church for uh, taking us in. Given us a home and a place to worship when we didn't have one. We were seeking to get this new uh, gospel-centered, disciple-making church planted here in Charlottesville. And uh, it is really a lot like we are living in our parents' basement. I mean, we are an inconvenience to them. They take care of us graciously, but, you know, we're using a lot of space, putting a lot of wear and tear. They put time and thought behind us using the space in here. They don't do some events that they could do because we're in here on Sunday night. So they have been over the top, abundantly gracious with us, and we could not be more thankful thankful to them and to Pastor Todd. So I just want to spend some time uh, right now real quick praying together, just thanking the Lord for the provision of this space over the past couple of years. Pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, that you are gracious to provide a space for us to worship over the past couple of years. We thank you for Pastor Todd and the whole community at Cross Life Church that are excited about uh, who we are as a church and what we are doing and are willing to allow us to use this space to meet and to worship and to hear your word. Uh, we pray that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, that you would uh, help them just to grow deeper into the gospel and also be wide on mission. And we thank you for co-laborers uh, here in Charlottesville that are seeking to uh, teach the Bible, declare uh, your goodness and your glory, um, to share this beautiful message of the gospel and to reach our city with us. So God, we uh, just thank you for them. We pray that you bless them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we are wrapping up a series uh, through the book of 1 Peter that we have been calling A Good Kind of Different because the book of 1 Peter is all about Christians living in a context where they are in some ways a little bit different, but in a lot of ways a lot different than the world around them. And what we see in the book of 1 Peter is two things. First, we see that living differently oftentimes brings along with it uh, difficulty and challenges. Through the book of 1 Peter, there has been so much talk about facing suffering, about following God in the midst of opposition, and being faithful in a world that is hostile to the message of the gospel. So that comes as we live differently. But there's a second thing that we get to look forward in the book of 1 Peter, and also through uh, the teachings of the scriptures, uh, that it comes as we live differently, and that is significant impact. As we live differently, significant impact can come. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's an influential pastor in the United Kingdom in the 20th century. He said this, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. When we live in a way that is a good kind of different from the world around us, it gives power and authenticity to the message of the gospel that we proclaim to the people around us. When we live as a counterculture sub-community here in Charlottesville that, are not, that is not living according to the values of the world, but instead is living according to the values of our Savior and King Jesus Christ, we display to the world something that is different in a very, very good way. 
Sometimes the words that we speak are going to be challenging and confrontational to our culture. But as we live out the truths of the gospel in our lives, we should be attractive in really meaningful ways to the world around us. So as we're moving into this uh, new building next week, and as we are praying about all that the Lord will do, that's kind of core and central to our heartbeat and our desire and our passion and our prayers, is that the Lord would bless us to help us be different in all of the good and right and godly ways, and that through that we would be able to continue reaching people in our community for Christ. So this week, as we wrap up uh, 1 Peter, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, and you can go ahead and turn there now. And in this chapter, Peter is going to apply the topic of humility to a smattering of different topics. Okay, he's just going to kind of do a handbook, quick hitter on applying humility in all of these different areas. And what we're going to see is that a culture of humility is going to be one way that the church is a really good kind of different from the world around us. But as we get going, I want to start uh, by asking you a question. How much can you tell about a person from what they wear? All right, how much can you tell about a person from what they wear? I know you should never judge a book by the cover. That's great. Don't do that. But if we're being honest, we look at people, what they wear, and we, we can learn, start to learn some things about them. You might get to learn kind of what their profession might be based on what they wear. Andrew over here is going to come rolling in scrubs one day because he's a doctor. All right, we might uh, discern maybe even stuff like did they vote red or blue based on what they wear or uh, what sports team that they're a fan of. So we can tell uh, some things about what people wear because what we wear reveals a lot about us. And in this chapter, Peter is going to tell Christians everywhere, this specific church, our church, he is going to say, you need to wear humility. It needs to be the clothes that you put on. It needs to be visible to the outside world. What you need to wear and put on is humility. It's a, it's a verse that's kind of halfway through chapter five. The second half of verse five says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like I said, this verse is right in the middle of the passage. It's the main theme of the whole of chapter 5, and it's going to flavor all of the different aspects and chunks of chapter 5, even if humility is not explicitly mentioned in those verses, because that's where Peter's headspace is. If you're going to be a good kind of different, you're going to need, you need to wear humility. And this verse is so core and foundational, and the theme of humility is so core and foundational because humility is a core characteristic of someone who has been transformed by the gospel. All right, humility is a core characteristic of someone who has been transformed by the gospel. When you read through the New Testament, there's a few passages that just very explicitly talk about the message of the gospel. We're sinners. God sent Jesus to live in our place. He died the death on the cross, rising again, defeating sin and death. And through faith in him, we can receive the gift of forgiveness, reconciliation with the Father, and eternal life to come. There's, there's verses that kind of hone in on this. And when verses touch on this message of the gospel really simply and explicitly, it's almost always tied to humility. Just think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a really popular couple of verses that you probably have heard before if you've been around church for a while. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. The message of the gospel there is tied directly to not boasting, which is directly humility. And on top of those, have you just thought about kind of the core confession, if you're a Christian, what the core confession of your faith is? We ask people at baptism this question, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary on your behalf for your salvation? 
The correct answer when we baptize people is yes, and they say it every time. They, they, they kill it, knock it out of the water. Um, but our confession there is that we are so sinful and so bad that Jesus had to die for us. We didn't need a mentor. We didn't need a life coach. We didn't need a new teacher. We needed a substitute that would bring us total transformation to make us, make us acceptable again. All right, doctrine. I just shared that. How does that not lead us into humility, <laughs> right? We're saying, I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. Christians should be a humble, humble people. I love the way that uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, defines humility. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is simply thinking of myself less. I'll say it again, it's kind of some wordplay there. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. A humble person doesn't think highly of themselves, which would be arrogance, or lowly of themselves, which would just be self-hatred. But instead, they realize that in the message of the gospel and the reality of a holy God, they're not the main character in the story. So they get out of the way and seek to honor him. So in this chapter, what Peter is going to do is apply this all-important theme of humility to a couple of different areas. He's going to jump in and show how we can be a good kind of different in the world as each of us are clothed with humility. So we'll start in verse 1 and pull some things out as we go. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This is Peter talking. This is what he tells the elders in this church to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The first thing that we are going to see apply, uh, uh, humility applied to is leading with humility. All right, leading with humility. Here we don't have the mention of that word. It's coming shortly after, but we're going to see how humility is applied to church leadership and specifically that office of elder. So I want to start some by talking about how God has set up the church, and particularly God has set up the leadership of the church with that term, um, elder. And I want to talk about this because I think there's a lot of uh, maybe confusion, but maybe just kind of ignorance or being unaware of what the Bible teaches about how a church should be organized and led and structured. So what is an elder? Well, first, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. Those words are synonyms in the New Testament used interchangeably. Uh, the words elder, overseer, and pastor are words that the Bible uses to refer to this office of church leader that God has instituted for his people to, to follow and to, to lead the church. So it's a particular singular office, and those words are used interchangeably. They each bring a different flavor to what that office requires. So elder emphasizes experience and wisdom. Overseer emphasizes the position of responsibility and authority over the church. And pastor is another word for shepherd or one who tends to and guides the church. So an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. So as we mix and match those words just to hang with us, and that's kind of all the same office that God is talking about in the scriptures as we set up the church. Second thing about elders, the New Testament ideal is a plurality of elders. 
All right, the New Testament ideal is a plurality of elders. You'll notice that the word elders here in the first verse is plural. Um, uh, and then uh, 15 of the 18 uses in the New Testament are plural. There's a couple when somebody is referring to themselves as an elder that are singular. Uh, the New Testament ideal is that local churches will be led by a group of elders, a plural shared leadership for the sake of wisdom and teamwork and really protection against authoritarian leaders. So the New Testament ideal is a plurality, a team of elders. Uh, next, that it's not just anyone can be an elder and not just somebody that, uh, you know, we think should be an elder can be an elder, but there's actually in the scriptures qualifications that elders need to meet. You can look in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and then Titus 1 as well as in a couple of other places that give lists of qualifications for someone taking this office of elder. Uh, these are biblical qualifications that focus more on character uh, than competence but do include both and include things like being hospitable, being able to teach sound doctrine, and not being greedy or quarrelsome uh, among other things. So elders must meet biblical qualifications. And then a last note here uh, I'll share with you on the Bible's teaching on this office of elder is that the scriptures, uh, in the scriptures, God has reserved the office of elder for men. God has reserved the office of elder for men. Um, what this... Uh, the Bible teaches, and you can see in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, more details there. This does not mean that women can't be meaningful leaders in the church in so many influential ways. By God's grace, we have a ton of godly and gifted women in our church who lead out in all kinds of meaningful ministry. Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to dive today more into this topic. It's not the main point of this text. Again, I can refer you to a couple other passages. We'd love uh, to share more with how we understand the scriptures and apply that in our context on a, around a sensitive issue. Uh, but in all of that, I think we do just need to remember that God is good and true and beautiful. His word that he gives us is those same things, good and true and beautiful. And so we seek to celebrate the way that God designed gender and gender roles within the church, which definitely includes empowering women to lead in meaningful ministry ways in the church, though God has reserved this office of elder for men, which we want to celebrate as well. So if you want to talk more about that, we're happy to connect with you and send you some resources on that as well. Here at Center Church, we seek to live this out faithfully, and we actually have five elders. Uh, two of us uh, you see up here quite a bit. That's Pastor Josh and myself. Uh, we are both elders in the church. We work full-time for the church. The other three do it for free. Uh, they do it all on their own. They are good and godly men because it is hard work, and they uh, do a great job leading the church. Um, those three elders are Forrest Corey, Alan Sheriff, and Russ Griffith. Um, if you don't know them yet, I would highly encourage you to find them after a service, talk with them, have them pray for you because they are awesome men to know, uh, to see how they lead their families, uh, and they do a great job leading the church uh, and I, I love being a part of uh, this team. So that is uh, some about what um, the elder job description, or the elder is in the New Testament. But here, Peter is not as focused on the um, on on what an elder is. He's kind of just assuming it. I wanted to fill it in for you. But a question might come up: Okay, what do you do? What does an elder do? And here, Peter does give us some direction. He gives a little bit of a job description. Uh, he says that elders, in the second verse, he says that elders should shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight. All right, shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight. The first thing I want to point out is that it says to shepherd the flock of God, meaning that our responsibility as elders is not to shepherd our flock, but that God entrusts in local churches people to be cared for and to provide oversight for. Um, it's a little bit like babysitting. All right? I'm taking care of somebody else's kids and not my own. In fact, this is a horrible story. In middle school, I was babysitting some uh, neighbors down the street, their kids. And the parents, uh, they went out to dinner, and I was watching the kids, and I fell asleep on the couch. 
All right, fell asleep on the couch. Um, I won't do it again. If I ever have to watch your kids, I won't fall asleep on the couch. And the worst part is I didn't wake up from anything except the parents getting home. <laughs> uh, so the chief shepherds returned. And uh, needless to say, I did not receive an unfading crown of glory. They never asked me to come back and watch their kids again. But they were entrusting their kids to me, which leaves with a level of responsibility and weightiness, which I did not follow through on like I should have. But in the same way, we are not, watching, we are not um, shepherding our own flock, but the flock of God that is among us. Um, the next thing we see there is that shepherding, uh, shepherding the flock of God is worked out by exercising oversight in that verse. Elders should be looking over the flock to provide spiritual care and direction for the whole church as well as individual people in the church. For the whole church, it looks like being able to feed with God's word as we preach and to set up services where we can come around like the table spiritually and feast and be nourished for a week of faithfulness. Or it looks like setting up systems and structures like serving teams and missional communities so that you can have relationships relationship with other believers and follow him faithfully. That looks exercising oversight over the whole church. But also we're called to exercise oversight and to shepherd individuals. And this looks like making sure that the hurting are cared for and encouraged in the gospel and the wandering are brought back uh, into the fold. But here in this passage, Peter is a little bit more concerned with the character than the job description. You notice that just from like how many words are about it. The whole next part is about the characteristics of these elders. So first, Peter says that elders should not lead under compulsion, but they should lead willingly. Right? There should be a desire to serve, not just because you have to and nobody else will do it, and I guess somebody has to, but there should be an eagerness and desire to serve. First Timothy 3 tells us that the desire to be an elder is a noble aspiration. Second, he says that elders should not lead for shameful gain, but they should lead eagerly. Unfortunately, we see and know numerous examples of pastors who line their own pockets with the resources of the church or are just chasing influence and power and authority. But the eagerness to serve in the role of elder or pastor should be a response to the gospel and a desire to lead God's people to love and treasure him. Third, elders should lead not domineering, but by being examples. Being in charge and using the position to force people to do what we want is not acceptable for an elder. But in humility, humility being worked out here, elders are called to lead by example, exhibiting the fruit of the spirit and modeling the self-sacrificial humility of Jesus. So as your elders, this is what we are called to do. It is a high calling and it is hard work. Uh, and we seek to live this out, though imperfectly, uh, we do our best to set an example of godliness for you. And Peter here acknowledges that it's hard work uh, to be an elder or a pastor. He says in verse four that there's a reward coming, right? Today it might be challenging, but press on, be faithful, because when the chief shepherd returns, there is a crown of glory. So that's the job of elders. And I hope you know that um, we want to do this faithfully uh, for you as a church to bless and encourage you and to help you follow Jesus. But we also want you to hold us to this. But this is not just the description of the, the elders roles. We can also pull out from these verses some principles about leadership more generally that apply, apply much more broadly. Definitely they apply in the church, leading a missional community or a serving team, but also they'll apply in leading your family or leading in the workplace. And if you have zero places of influence, which I would challenge you that that's probably not true, they will even apply in leading yourself. So a couple of principles that come out from this about how we can lead in a way that's humble and honoring to the Lord. The first one is this, uh, lead for tomorrow and not for today. All right, lead for tomorrow and not for today. I just mentioned this, but there's no reason to promise the coming return of Jesus and the unfading crown if it's really easy and exciting and rewarding in the moment. 
right? Sometimes leading is not the easiest for the moment, but we need to look forward to a future reality or a future reward to keep the motivation going for something that's really hard. Uh, This really comes home to me in parenting. Uh, Oftentimes, it would be so much easier just to give my toddler what he wants as I see those wheels of tantrums starting to spin to ease him and to move him along rather than teaching him to listen and obey to mommy and daddy with a happy heart, right? I could just give him what he wants and we don't have to deal with it. That makes this afternoon easier, but it makes 10 years from now a lot harder as character and godly character isn't developed in him. We need to strive to lead for tomorrow and not for today. That might be true at your job or your workplace. That might be true as you're discipling or mentoring a younger Christian. My encouragement and challenge to you would be think about that. Don't just lead in a way that makes today easier, that gains applause now, or move somebody somebody in a particular direction for a moment, but think through what it looks like to do the costly work of harder leadership at times that's looking forward to the difference it'll make five and ten years from now rather than the ease it will bring this afternoon. Afternoon. So lead for tomorrow, not for today. The second principle that we pull out of this is uh, that we need to lead for others and not for ourselves. We need to lead for others and not for ourselves. Jesus is the perfect example of this, right? He was king, he was ruler, he was leader, but rather than taking the easy way out or using those positions of influence and power for his own selfish gain, he used the places of power and authority and privilege granted to him for the sake of us who didn't deserve it, right? Jesus used his leadership and his influence for others, and he is our pattern. Ironically, what this leads to is actually Jesus' glory. In Philippians 2, it's a famous passage that talks about Jesus' humiliation and ultimately death on a cross. And right after it says that Jesus died on the cross, there's a word that says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In some sense, Jesus' self-sacrificial for others leadership was very selfish because there was an eventual glory coming that would only come through the pathway of suffering for the good of others. And leadership is the same for you. You can gain influence, you can gain comfort in the moment by selfishly leading for your own desires. But there is a path to true and better glory in the long term as you lead for the sake of others, even though it costs you comfort in the moment. Jesus is our pattern in this, our example in it. We should seek to live that out as well, whatever areas of leadership that we have. We need to lead for others and not for ourselves. Humility in the area of leadership always leads to these principles. Wherever God has put you, my hope and desire is that you can take those and kind of plug them in or it will shape your mind a little bit more as you are leading. Um, But just as every single one of us has opportunities to lead, whether it's us or ourselves or others, all of us also have opportunities to follow. We all have opportunities to follow others. And Peter is going to turn from applying humility to leading now to applying humility to those who are following. So uh, look at verse 5 with me. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And we have the second topic that he's applying humility to. It's following with humility. 
So while uh, the teaching that Peter had for leaders was about four verses long, we literally have half a verse here. You just look at your Bibles. It's not even all of verse five. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You'll remember in chapters two and three that Pastor Josh taught on a few weeks ago, um, this, he, Peter gave directions uh, for Christians to be subject in different areas of their lives to different authorities. Um, and he uses the same words here. But the question arises very quickly, why does he address those who are younger? All right, why does he address those who are younger? Everyone is called to follow the leadership of the elders in a local church. Uh, but I think the reason is this, and we see it throughout the scripture in a number of places, is that the younger are prone to pride and rejecting the leadership of elders in ways that people have more years of following Jesus and just more years of life under their belt are not as prone to do, generally. Can you have an older, proud person? Yes. Can you have a younger, humble person? Yes. But Peter is specifically saying, hey, if you are younger, you are likely more proud. You are likely more prone to see the world in black and white and assuming you know which is black, which is white, and what everyone else should think or believe about any given topic. And so he gives a special direction to those who are young to be subject to the elders. And this is a warning for us as a church, because I don't know if you've looked around, but we are a young, young Young church. I was uh, talking to an uh, outside group. They were like looking at some things for church, giving us some recommendations, and they like looked at our age breakdown, and they just assumed there was a mistake because our church is so young. They're like, we've never seen anything like this. You're a young church. I think it's the reality of being a church plan, of being in a college town, of being, there's a number of things that I think played out to it. Uh, so if you are older here, I mean, I'll throw you in like over 35, you know, the, then, um, then we are so thankful for you and uh, grateful uh, that you are here. Um, I'm sure there have been frustrations along the way with being a part of a young church. We're so grateful for the wisdom uh, that you bring. And we're actively praying that the Lord would bring more godly and faithful older people into our church family to help us follow Jesus and reach our community together. But this passage is a warning for us as a young church to beware of our pride uh, and to seek uh, really hard after, um, after humility uh, toward one another. So Peter here gives this really clear command to those who are younger, be subject to the elders. As Pastor Josh pointed out when he talked about this phrase in chapters two and three, be subject simply means to submit or to obey. Um, and this is one of the reasons that elders need to meet these high character qualifications. If God is telling people to submit or obey to you, you need to be the kind of person who is not going to take advantage of that, but is gonna be a blessing in other people's lives. So these qualifications are high and challenging. And the reality of submitting or obeying, um, following this in the context of a church or in any context, is that honestly submitting, in a, I think in a church context, is easy to do until it's not. Right? It's easy to do until it's not. You've probably been at Center Church for a while, and you probably haven't had a ton of instances where you've had to really submit in a really challenging way. Um, but it can get hard very quickly because being subject to anyone is hard, and it's no different with elders. It means doing what the elders say rather than what you want. No matter who you are, that's tough. On top of that, elders sin. We are not perfect. We make wrong decisions. We've had to apologize to you, our church, our church family, before about decisions that we have made. And you might just be simply rubbed the wrong way by our personalities or the way we talk. Like It's just challenging to submit to other humans. But we see here in, the, in other places in the scripture that it's not the elders telling you uh, to be subject, but God's word. Being subject to the elders is not primarily about obedience to the elders. It's primarily about obedience to God. 
Hebrews 13 is another place this is talked about. And 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no, of no advantage to you. Um, right, real quick, what I want to do right now is have a little bit of like a family, a family talk, all right, if I may. Um, so uh, we practice covenant membership here, and a part of what covenant membership is, is uh, you are saying, hey, we are inviting you, elders, five elders, to be my pastor. That, that's a covenant membership. That's one of the things you're doing. If you're not a covenant member here, uh, we are so glad that you're here. I hope you'll join us for the weekender or take some next steps to connection, connect at all different rates. We'd love to answer whatever questions you have. But for our covenant members, that's what you've done. You've invited us to be uh, your pastors. And so I just want to talk to our center church family, those covenant members uh, now real quick. So our job, if I just have to sum it all up, is to lead with humility, the elders, right? Our job is to lead with humility. Your job is to follow with humility. And as Hebrews 13 says, make it a joy for us to lead you. And when we both do our part, or when we both do our part, the church is a beautiful and different and a really good way kind of place in the world. When the elders are selfish or domineering, when the church is proud or arrogant, this is a disaster. And I think this relationship between the elders and the church plays out at two different levels. All right, two different levels. The first one would be the church-wide level, kind of the broad church level. And this gets worked out on different decisions that are made that are not quite as interpersonal. The kind of music that we have, decisions about the strategy and direction of the church, the service times, the all different sorts of things uh, that could lead to frustration or difficulty. And pride could creep up and say, uh, did they not think about me? Do they not care about that minute mercy part? partnership because then I talk about this one. Is there, there's issues that could come up of just like a frustration uh, um, as uh, a proud person reacts to decisions that the elder team makes. But the heart of humility and someone who might have the same exact issues would respond rather with this way. I might've done it differently, but they have more information than me. Like it's their job. So they're working through this quite a bit. Um, and I'm sure they're doing the best they can. And I really trust they love Jesus and want people to come to know him. So I'm going to send like a nice email with some feedback on my thoughts and concerns and trust that they'll make the best decision they can. Right, so that's kind of the different ways to approach it. So on the church broad scale, that's just what I would ask of you. Trust that we're doing our best and we're going to miss on decisions. We value your feedback, but we pray and hope that you can come to us with a posture of trust as we're working through things together. All right, at the individual level, though, not the church level, things get a little bit tougher. All right, we're called to shepherd, exercise oversight, keep watch over souls. And sometimes that means caring for people who are hurting, which is very meaningful. But other times that means bringing people back from wandering, uh, whether they're straying from the fold because of a bad doctrine and information they're believing that's not true, or by a consistent practice of sinful living with a lack of repentance. So from time to time, we have to kind of step in, whether it's because of ongoing sin or lack of wisdom, we have to seek to guide this person back to the path, right? This is challenging. It is not fun uh, because it is specific and personal and confrontational. But we do this because we love you. We do this because, and we're trying our very best to do this, we do this because we love you, and we are going to answer one day before God for our faithful shepherding of your soul. So as we see you straying away, we love you enough to step in, to have a conversation, and to call you uh, to walk back toward faithfulness. 
All right, so that's the family talk. We'll get back to everyone here. All right, our American spirit uh, just bucks so hard against this idea of obeying or submitting to other person at all, which is why humility is so important, so vital in the life of the church. These themes of leading and following are tied directly to humility, as we see in the second half of this verse, 5.5b. That's where it says, the one we started with, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we wear the clothing of humility in leading and in following, the church really can be a good kind of different in the world. When we don't, probably leads to looks like much like any business or other group of uh, political factions, hostile takeovers, or power struggles. But I do praise God. I praise God that we as a church have been so healthy on this front. And it truly has been, Hebrews 13, 17, a joy to shepherd you as an elder team. So we are so grateful for our church family. But now Peter is going to turn the corner and he's going to start applying humility. I said it's quick hitter. So he's taking a hard left turn here. I just did right, but it's left for you, I think. He's taking a hard turn. All right. He's taking a hard turn away from leading and following. He's going to apply humility in another area. So pick up with me in verse six and we'll see where he applies humility uh, to wrap up this section. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here, Peter is going to talk about humility when facing difficulty. All right, humility when facing difficulty. Difficulty. Throughout 1 Peter, time and again, we have seen that they are facing, facing suffering and trial and difficulty. And when we face difficulty, a lot of temptations pop up. And Peter is going to address two of those temptations that pop up when we face difficulty here. And he's going to point out that both of the antidotes require humility. So the first temptation that difficulty brings is worry. Or the first temptation that difficulty brings into our lives is worry. And the Bible is honest with us in ways that many other places in the world won't be. Because in the Bible, anxiety and worry are often tied to pride or a lack of trust in God. We see that here in this verse. And then we also see that in Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So in that verse, we see a command, right? Do not be anxious about anything. That seems like a tough command because anxiety and worry seems just kind of like well up inside us in a way that we can't often push back or control against. But Peter um, gives us some resources to obey this command because that's what the Bible does. It never gives us a command without also giving us the resources to actually obey it. So in Philippians 4 and 1 Peter 5, we see that the path to peace in the midst of unsettling circumstances is prayer. We can turn to God, casting our anxieties on him, handing our anxieties over to him to find peace. Peter tells us very clearly to cast our anxieties on the Lord. And really, worry is simply praying to yourself. Right? It's meditating on your problems, considering how to fix them, stewing on them. It's pride because you are thinking that you are the solution to all of the uncertainty in your life. Prayer is very, very similar to this, except you're not praying to yourself, but you're taking your problems to God. 
right? This is humility, trusting that God has the solution to the uncertainties in our life. In prayer, we have a gracious invitation from God to take the burdens of anxiety and stewing on the uncertainty of life and to transfer them to his mighty and caring hands. Peter is teaching us here, when we face difficulty, we don't worry, we pray. All right, we don't worry, we pray. But to really pray and to really find a peace and a trust in God in the midst of really challenging difficulty that we walk through, we don't have to sugarcoat this. Um, we need to know a couple of things about God, and Peter gives them to us. The first one that he points out, the characteristic of God, is that God is mighty. He says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. God is mighty. This means that God can do what you need in your life. All right. The second thing, he, though, he says, is that God cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because God is caring for you, he cares for you, that means that God will do what you need done in your life. Now, this is really difficult to believe in seasons of difficulty. Worry is um, all about the unknown, and in seasons of difficulty, the unknown is scary and intense, whether it's a diagnosis, an uncertain job situation, or loneliness with no hope of friends to come around. We desperately need humility before God when we are season, in seasons of difficulty, because we are prone to say, God, why are you doing this, doing this this way? It doesn't make sense. God, do you hear my prayers? God, where are you? Do you even care about me? Are you even real? Right, the disciples did this while they were on the boat in the storm and Jesus was sleeping. Uh, they went and woke him up. And they said, Jesus, do you even care? And he like knocked the sleepies out of his eyes and put the seat of sleep and then you know, schooled all of them in faith. Um, but they, they did the same thing. Difficulty arose. There's doubt and temptation to worry and they didn't trust Jesus. Romans 8, 28 is an incredibly powerful promise, a verse that you should cling to and hold on to because there's gonna be times in your life when you face difficulty and you're not gonna know the way out and you're not gonna be able to discern what God is doing or why he's doing it. But Romans 8.28 is a promise. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called, for those who are called according to his purpose. There's going to be incredible difficulty you face. There's going to be no way to figure out exactly what God is doing. It may look like there is nothing possible good that could come from the difficulty that you are facing. But we have a promise from a mighty and a caring God and Father who says he's working everything out for our good. He's working everything out for our good. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it difficult, difficulty just like happy, clappy, and laughing but it does give us a steadfast hope to cling to in the midst of incredibly challenging uh, circumstances that we will face. Peter's application of humility to difficulty here is we don't worry, we pray. And then he, gives a, he moves on to a second temptation that we face in difficulty. And the second temptation is this. Temptation, uh, the, the second temptation difficulty brings is giving in to sin. All right, the second temptation that will get brought into your life when difficulty comes is the temptation to just give in to sin. Right here, Peter says uh, that Satan is on the prowl. He's looking, uh, he's, he's coming around. He is, uh, he's uh, trying to devour us uh, and that we should uh, resist him. Uh, this temptation to sin and difficulty might come from other people or it might come from your sinful flesh, right? It might look like scorn that if you believe that about Jesus, you are anti-science. It might look like scorn because the moral system that the scriptures portray is um, the problem in the world rather than the solution. So we might be tempted to pull back from trusting in Jesus or it might just come from our sinful flesh, 
right? It might just be like, Jesus, self-control and sex and money and uh, drinking just mean I'm not going to get the good life. So I would rather choose sin than face the difficulty of faithfulness in these areas, right? Pride says, I know what I need in this situation better than God. I've done the calculations, I've looked around, the, 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 the calculator has gone through, and I see what God says, but I really know that for me, it's better to do something else, right? That's, that's the heart of pride. Humility says, even though I see what seems like an easier path, I trust God more than myself, All right? When difficulty comes, there is always going to be an easy out by sin. There's always going to be an easier out by sin every time, but it's never going to live up to its promise, and it's always going to leave you cleaning up a mess that was worse than you started. Right, this is exactly what Adam and Eve uh, faced in the garden when the serpent came to them and said, does God really know what is best? Do you really want to listen to him? Is he holding out on you and actually eating that fruit is the path to the good life? Right, with grave consequences, rather than obeying and trusting their loving God creator, they went their own way in rebellion. They calculated their little human pea brain and they decided it would be best, rather than trusting a loving God, to go their own way. But this is what we do today, isn't it? We trust ourselves rather than trusting God. This is the essence of sin and rebellion, rebellion against a loving God. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. This temptation is also one that Jesus faced a couple times throughout his life. Uh, to start his ministry, uh, after he was baptized, Jesus found himself sent out to the desert for 40 days of fasting. And at his uh, weakest moment, uh, the enemy, Satan, the serpent, came to tempt him with very similar lies uh, that the serpent all those years before had lied to Adam and Eve with. He said, Jesus, there's actually a path to glory that doesn't have to go through the cross. Jesus, there's a path that I can give you the worship of nations. I can give you bread right now to feed your body. There's a path to glory that doesn't, uh, that's easy and doesn't mean going through the cross. But Jesus, our perfect Savior and holy God, resisted. Right? In perfect humility, in perfect resistance, in perfect obedience to the Father, Jesus resisted the temptation in the way that Adam and Eve and you and I all fall short. There's another moment in Jesus' life, much closer uh, to the end, uh, just before the cross, um, where Jesus was uh, in a garden. Uh, Jesus, uh, the night before his uh, crucifixion, uh, found himself with his disciples in the garden, asking them to come around and to pray for him in another moment of great weakness. On uh, the forefront of his mind, Jesus saw the crucifixion, separation from the Father, and the incredible pain that he was going to go through. But rather than supporting him, the disciples all fell asleep, they all ran away. So Jesus went to the Father in a moment of difficulty. He could have taken an easier path, but instead he walked in obedience and he prayed this prayer to the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the gospel, we see that Jesus carried out humility with absolute perfection in all the ways that we fall short. He led with perfect hum humility. He used his privileged place for our good. He followed with humility. He subjected his will to the Father. And he faced difficulty with humility. Even when it cost him something, even when it cost him his life, he trusted the Father and walked in obedience and went to the cross for us. 
Because of our pride and unwillingness to humble ourselves before God, we do deserve to be cast out and deserve the, the righteous result of our rebellion, rebellion against him. But Jesus on the cross was not just the example of humility. He also was a substitute for us. He took the penalty for our pride on himself so that through him we could be forgiven and welcomed back to God as if we had always been humble, as if we had always listened and obeyed right away. Praise God for a gracious, forgiving, and humble Savior. The heart of gospel humility says this, God, I see your love for me in the message of the gospel. I see your love for me in the message of the gospel, and therefore, I trust you more than I trust myself. That's gospel humility. That is gospel humility, and we need that humility if we're going to lead with humility not domineering, not selfish motives, if we're gonna follow with humility even when it confronts us and if we're gonna face difficulty with humility even if it's gonna be a cost to us. Peter wraps up the book with these words. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Peter. What a refreshing picture it gives us of the reality of the world. It's so incredibly helpful to know what we will face and to receive the resources from you to press back with faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a humble people in response to your gospel. And we pray that you would help us to apply humility to our leadership, to our following, and to the times that are coming that we will face difficulty. Lord, we trust you more than we trust ourselves. Help us to live that out more and more faithfully together as a church. Amen.